Well, good morning. Let me welcome you to Crossroads. We are excited that you're here. It is, for those that may not know, it is Hawaiian Tropic Sunday. Uh, it's one of those days that we ask you guys to kind of dress up and kind of feel summer and what summer's all about. So I see most of you did that. You did really, really well. Uh, and again, I, I honestly, I'm just going to be totally honest with you and tell you straight up front, I had to totally change the outfit because I didn't want to be a distraction to the message anyway. So I, I, I was going to have a lot of fun with that, so I'll put it back on after the message is over, so I didn't want to be distracting. So anyway, there you go. We welcome you. Again, we're excited that you're here. As today is week five of our series, Five Lies. Over the last four weeks, this being week five, what we have done is we ask you to send us in lies that you, somewhere in your life, you bought into, you believed, you practiced, you incorporated it into your life, and you ultimately determined or figured out that what somebody had told you or taught you or shared with you was a lie, and it has somehow adversely impacted your life. So what we said four weeks ago was that we're going to go to Scripture and we're going to dismantle those lies with the Word of God, with what God has to say about the lies that you sent in. And again, let me be honest with you, and for those that are watching, joining us on Facebook, again, one of the things that we did is we took the lies that you sent in, some of them were similar, and we kind of, you know, combined them so that we could kind of hit all the things that you were wanting to know about and wanting to, to hear about from Scripture. Let me also say this as uh, I want to invite you uh, this Wednesday to join me right here in the auditorium. Uh, we have something we call a call to prayer. It happens every Wednesday, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. right here in the auditorium. The music is set. The mood is set. Uh, the auditorium is basically empty. Uh, and you're just encouraged to come in and to find a place to pray, to pray for our community, to pray for our country, to pray for our leaders, uh, to pray for our families, and to pray for our church. So I would strongly encourage you, if you can, one Wednesday or every Wednesday, join me here, join other people here uh, between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. and just pray. Because again, the scripture says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and pray, I will hear from heaven. And that's our basis Again, I know people could get, could get all kind of theologically, well, that's not really intended for the church. It, it, look, it, it applies to the church today. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and repent from their sin and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. That's the command and the call to the church and to us as followers of Jesus Christ to be that church and to be those people. So join me here uh, some Wednesday, this Wednesday, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. It's ironic that today we are celebrating Hawaiian Tropic Sunday, and two days ago we had this major catastrophe happen in Maui and Lahana, and just uh, as what I saw this morning, and again, I may not pronounce things right. You guys are pretty used to that. But anyway, uh, 80 lives lost just came out of nowhere. Lots of questions, lots of rabbit holes you could go down about how this happened. How did people not know? What, why did it happen? Again, lots of conspiracy theories, I understand. But needless to say, destruction has happened and people have lost their lives. And we're talking about prayer, so I don't think there's anything more that we need to do as far as going further than praying for that situation and those people. So I'm just going to ask you, if you will, those watching online, you in the auditorium, listening online, join me as we pray. 
God, again, we thank you for your goodness towards us, for your love and your mercy that is new every morning. But God, right now, in this moment, we lift up those people in Hawaii who have experienced utter devastation, lost, many of them, everything. Some people have lost their lives and left families behind. So God, we just pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit that you would comfort and strengthen those people who are dealing with loss, whether it be material possessions or, earth, or people who they have lost in their family. And God, we just pray that you would surround them and that they would feel your presence. And God, that you would give them the strength that they need to go forward and to make the decisions that they need to make. God, that you would be an ever-present help in a time of trouble, and this is that time of trouble. So be there and surround them and do what only you can do. God, we don't just lift up the people in Hawaii. We lift up the people in Mount Juliet who experienced a fire yesterday that was in that par apartment building that was caused supposedly just by a lightning strike. And many people, some people that I know, some friends of Crossroads, lost everything that they had. And God, we just pray in both of these situations that the church would be the church and the church would rise up and the church would meet the needs of those people who have needs. God, we want to do what we can do when we hear what needs are actually needed. But we know there are other people closer who are also going to jump in, who are already jumping in and making a difference. So God, we just pray that in Mount Juliet as well in Maui that you would just comfort them, strengthen them, give them the, everything that they need to move forward with the assurance that you will make a way where there does not seem to be a way. As we ask this prayer this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I stop and think about my life and your life, and I think about things just in general, I start to realize that a lot of our life has been about chasing it. That's not the it that's the clown down in the sewer, okay? That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But we chase it. I think that, you know, when I get it, I'll finally be happy. I want it so badly. If, if I could just get it, if I had it, then I would be satisfied. And you know what's ironic? There have been several times in my life when I got it. But there's this thing, this phrase called buyer's remorse. Where you buy it, and it doesn't bring the satisfaction that you thought it was going to bring. And then I have to take care of it. Then I have to organize it. Or maybe I have to replace it. Or maybe somebody wants to borrow it. And when somebody borrows it, you know what I do? I worry about it. Because my security and my identity is tied up in it. Now, listen to what I'm saying. There's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. Did you hear what I said? It isn't wrong. It's just that sometimes it becomes more important 
than it should. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, flip over to chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Here's what it says. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, here's what's really interesting. We're going to stop right there. We've got to stop right there because I'm going to tell you something you probably didn't know. This is somebody calling out to Jesus. Jesus is about to break it down. And, and I, mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, I think Jesus could break it down like nobody else. And, and Jesus is about to break it down, and somebody calls out from the crowd and says, Hey, teacher, would you tell my brother to divide my father's estate with me. And, and, and again, the thing we have to understand is who has the audacity? I'll tell you who has the audacity to say something like to, that to Jesus. It was probably a younger brother. I mean, think about it. You probably never thought about that, but that's probably who it was. See, here's the thing. You have to understand this. How many of you have an older sibling? Well, if that's you then it can always seem to you like the firstborn gets everything. Is anybody going to agree with me on that? I mean, you will. I mean, think about it like this. Go, through the fam- go home this afternoon and go through the family album of pictures, and I can almost guarantee you, I would bet you, as a recovering Baptist, I would bet you. <laughs> Never see them in the liquor store, do you? Uh, so anyway. I would bet you that there's more pictures of the older sibling than there is of anybody else. Can I get an amen, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. It's always been that way, and it will always be that way. It's like the older ones always get the attention. But listen to this. According to Jewish law, the oldest was supposed to get a double portion of everything. But look at the next verse. Somebody hollers out. And Jesus replied. He says, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware. Interesting Choice of words. Then he said, beware. In other words, Jesus said, watch out. Why would Jesus say beware? Why would Jesus mean to that that crowd of people that's listening to him, watch out? And I'll tell you the reason why I believe Jesus says it this way. It's because Jesus knew the issue that they were dealing with. Get my father's estate divided Jesus knew the issue and how tricky that issue was. Again, in my opinion, it's one of the reasons why Jesus so often talks about money. And the atmosphere in the room totally changed. Because Jesus knew it was a tricky issue. See, outside of the kingdom of God, which at its core message is that God is at work with us, 
Jesus talked more about money than he talked about any other subject. I mean, think back to July. We, we talked about some parables, remember that, the stories that Jesus tells? I mean, that's what you have happening here today. And I may go back and cover a couple more of those parables in the next week or two. But Jesus told 30 parables, I think I'm correct. And of those 30 parables, did you ever realize that 19 of the 30 parables were about money? Because Jesus knew that it was an issue. So Jesus says, beware. And look at how he goes on. He says, beware. He says, watch out. He says, guard your heart or guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And here we go. Then he told them a story, a parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And you know, you know, you know when I visualize that, you know what I see? I see this guy so happy with himself that he's gone down to the Cedar City Brewery and he's just sitting there having a smash burger and he's just enjoying himself because he feels so good about himself. But what has he said here? He's basically said, you know what, I need more room For all my stuff. And most of you like me have the same problem. You know why? Because it's an American problem. We have so much stuff in this country that we don't know what to do with our stuff. Let me give you some interesting statistics. In 1950, the average size of a house in the U.S. was 983 square feet in size. That house of 983 square feet housed 3.37 people. By the year 2015, the average house was 2,467 square feet which was the peak before falling back in 2021 to 2,273 square feet. But it only housed 2.7 people at this time. And you know what that means? We have three times more space for our stuff than we had back in the 1950s. But even though we have three times more space and less people in that space, there's still not enough room for our stuff. So people, what did people do? They started putting their stuff in their garage. And guess what? After a while, there wasn't enough room for the car in the garage. Because they had so much stuff in the garage. 
One study found that 75% of people could not get their car in the garage because they had so much stuff in the garage. So then people like me, because if you know me, you're going to know where I'm going with this. Then people not like me said, you know what? I bet people will pay for places to put their stuff. I bet we could sell space. And people would put all their extra stuff, the stuff that they don't like enough to have in the home where they live, they would take that stuff and put it in the rented space so they could visit their stuff when they kind of miss their stuff. So you know what we had? We had what I used to be in. Some of you know this. We have the self-storage business. And I owned almost, and I, and I say this so you understand and comprehend what I'm go, where I'm going with this. I owned 500 of those mini storage units. And do you know that I was full all the time? I had a waiting list for people to bring their stuff and put into my mini storage units. So now we have the self-storage business. How many square feet do you think is rented out in self-storage in the United States? The last statistic that I could find was over 2.3, over, over, 2.35 billion square feet of self-storage in the United States of America. You know how big that is? That's three times the size of the island of Manhattan. The self-storage business has been the fastest growing area in commercial real estate because we don't have enough space to store our stuff. It's the same thing that the guy in the parable, in the story that Jesus is telling. He doesn't have enough room to store his stuff. So let's, let's go back. Here's what it says. But God said to him, the guy who was going to build a bigger, you know, more barns. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? And look at what Jesus says. Yes, a person is a fool. Come on now. To store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, what's the point of the parable? Is the point of the parable to tell you that you should not have it or that you should not want it or that you should not desire it? Is the purpose of the parable to tell you that you should feel guilty about having it? You should feel guilty about having a lot of stuff or wanting nice stuff? Is that the point of the parable? No. Part of the human condition, listen, listen you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach this in a way you've never thought about it. Part of the human condition is us having stuff, owning stuff, cultivating stuff. Because if you and I weren't meant to have stuff, if we weren't meant to have it, then guess what? That commandment, do not steal, would not need to be there, right? It's about the human condition. We're meant to have stuff. But Jesus is trying to warn us of a lie or a series of lies. Lies that we kind of tend to lean into over the course of our lives. 
See, today is week five of our series, Five Lies. And today we're going to look at a lie that many of you have, you probably walked into here this morning, leaning into this lie. So much so that some of you over the last couple of weeks or month brought this up to me and said, Randy, we, we, we really have got to address this lie. And the big lie that we're looking at today is lie number five. And that lie goes something like this. More is better. If I have more, I'll be better. If I have more, I'll feel better. If I have more, I'll be more satisfied. It's just more, more, more is better. I need more stuff. I need bigger barns. I need many storage units because more is better. That's the big picture lie. But under that lie, I have three little lies that I believe will help us to dismantle that big lie. Here's lie number one. More of it will give me security. If I could get more of it, I'll have more security. I mean, look at, look at this sentence from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his younger colleague, Timothy, who was at the church and leading the church in Ephesus. Here's what Paul said as he wrote to Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. And can I just say, I don't care who you are in this. I don't care who you are, front to back, left to right, online. I don't care who you are. You're rich. You're rich. You don't think you are, but you're rich. And Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And, you know, I was just having a thought. I didn't have this thought in the first service. You know, you, you know, some of you would say right now, you know, I'm in, I'm in a bad time. It's a bad time. You know what bad times tell you? That good times are coming. And you know what good times will remind you? That bad times are coming. But Paul writes this to these Christians in Ephesus. And I need you to understand this. Paul is writing to people who follow Jesus. These are people who, just like us, these are people who sang songs. These are people who memorized verses. These are people who showed up at church. They showed up at the temple. They memorized scriptures. Many of them were believers who had actually faced, faced death because they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul knew that he still had to remind them, hey, as time goes on, you need to remember that stuff. Don't think that that stuff or that money is going to satisfy you. Don't think that that money or that stuff is going, to is going to provide security for you. Anybody in here ever talk to yourself? I mean, I used to make fun of my parents, especially my mother. She did that all the time. You know, I, I, I'd be walking through the house, and I'd see her, you know, washing dishes. And I was just like, you know, you, know, you, you eventually become your parents. That's exactly kind of the way it happens. And, and, and so, you know, if you, if you pull up next to me in the car, and you can see through my windows, which I've got them tinted, so you can't. But anyway, uh, if you could, and you see me talking, I may be on the phone, but chances are I'm talking to myself, especially if you see my hands moving, because I can't talk without my hands moving. 
But have you ever had a conversation with yourself and you said something like this? If I could just make $100,000 a year, I'd be set. If we could make $100,000 a year, we wouldn't have to worry. We wouldn't have to fight about money. But here's the thing. The people who are making $100,000 a year right now, you know what they're saying? If we could just make $125,000 a year, then I'd finally be secure. I finally would not have to fight or to worry about money. Don't answer this out loud, but I'm going to ask you a question. How much money do you think it would take for you to be financially secure? See, I can see some of you and some of you I can't see. Some of you I know are out there in that pitch dark, you know. And some of you I don't know are out there. But again, I can, I can guarantee you this. I can answer that question for every person in the auditorium and every person watching and listening online. I know exactly how much money it would take for you to be financially secure. You want to know the answer? More than you have. It would take more than you currently have. Look at Proverbs 18, verse 11. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine their wealth as a wall that's too high to climb. There's a key word there. Leave that there just a minute, Jay. The key word there in that verse is the word imagine. In other words, your wealth is not real. It's not real. Imagine. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. So what's the Bible telling you? The Bible is telling you this morning, listen to what I'm saying. The Bible is dismantling that lie. More of it will not give you security. I didn't say that. That's what the Bible says. Here's lie number two under the umbrella of the big lie. More of it will give me peace and happiness. More of it will give me more peace and happiness. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. I mean, think about it. It's true, right? There's nothing that we worry about like we worry about money. We worry about how to make more. How to make it go farther, how to invest it, how to save it, how to spend it, how to protect it. And we buy into the illusion that if I could just get more money, that more money will keep me from worrying. So we keep getting more and more money, and what do we end up doing? We keep worrying. About what? About more money. And we keep falling for the lie that if we had more, we'd be happier and we'd be more satisfied. See, I, I want you to think about something that Jesus said. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And let me just tell you this. Jesus didn't give you that little phrase because he wanted you to put that on your Christmas card this Christmas. Jesus said that because he meant that. 
you will actually, listen, you will actually like your life more. You will actually have more peace if you spend your time thinking more about how you can give, come on, instead of get. You'll have more peace and you'll like your life more if you'll just take the time and not worry about how you can get more, but how you can give more. And let me tell you, I just know it goes against your flesh. I understand that. And I know most of you don't like that. And, and, and I'm just going to tell you, it's the truth. So more of it will not give you more peace and more happiness. We think more is better. More is better. i got to have more. i got to have more. Here's lie number three. Look at lie number three. Under the umbrella of that big line, more is better. Lie number three, here's how it goes. More of it will make me more generous. Greatest illusion in my mind when it comes to money. We think that the only reason we can't be generous is because it's just too tight. It's just, Randy, you just don't understand. You don't know what my family's going through. You don't know what we've been through. We've just come out of COVID. We've, we, you know, we've had to do this. We've had to do that. We just think, you know what, we can't do it because things are so tight and we don't make a lot. So we think, you know, when I make more, that's when I'm going to be generous. But let me just tell you, the trouble is it doesn't work that way. A number of surveys indicate people with lower incomes actually give away a higher percentage of their income. The lower income give away more than the wealthy people do. Because the more that you get, listen, 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 the more that you get, the harder it is to be generous. So listen, listen, listen. If you can't be generous with 25,000, what makes you think you're going to be given generous with 50,000? If you're not generous right now making 50,000, what makes you think you're going to be generous when you make 100,000? Listen, if you can't be generous with what you have now, time, talent, treasure, if you can't be generous with what you have now, what makes you think you'll be generous with when you get more? You will never be generous when you get more if you're not generous with what you have now. See, the Bible tells us that there was this community. You see, there was this community of, of people. It was the early church. And you know, most of the people in the early church, based on historical record and scripture, we understand that most of the people in that church didn't have anything at all. But they were the people who took the idea of generosity really serious. This is what it says describing the early church, Acts 4, starting at verse 32. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. 
The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which Barnabas means the son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field that he owned and brought the money to the apostles. I, I, I want to tell you how, how critical this is and, and, and why I believe it's so informative. There's a book called The Power of Habit. It's the book I have in my hand. It's not a religious book. It's not a faith-filled book. It's just a book written by an author who says that you and I are just a collection of habits. And I haven't read the whole book, but I brought it to you that you can see it so that you can go on Amazon and get it because I think it's worthy of getting if you have spare time and, you know, once you've finished your Bible and, and all those things that you need to do and you're looking for something, this is, this is a great book, The Power of Habit. And the author says that we're a collection of habits. And one particular idea that he has in this book is he talks about this thing called a keystone habit. And a keystone habit is, is one of those habits that if I change that one habit, that one habit has the ability to be like dominoes and to start to impact or affect all of these other habits. It's a catalyst. to new ways of thinking, new patterns of thinking, new patterns of desiring, new patterns of behaving. A keystone habit is not an isolated habit. It's, it's actually a connected habit. And so they did research into this, this thing called a keystone habit, and what they discovered is this. Specifically, they kind of ran upon this thing about, about physical health and they started looking at this thing, and they, they, they kind of ran up on this thing of, of food journaling. Writing down, journaling. You know, I encourage you to journal, you know, daily, weekly, monthly. Keep a journal of what God's doing in your life and the things that are happening to you, the seasons you're going through. Because sometimes God seems like he's just not there. But what they discovered is that people who started to journal down what they ate, journaling their food for a week or two. If they just started to journal everything that they eat, they eat or ate, it started to cause people to recognize patterns or tendencies. And they saw it because they were writing down, you know, we had breakfast at Burger King and lunch at Chick-fil-A and dinner at Choney's. And they're like, my gosh, what are we eating here? All this processed food. And they started to notice these, these habits of doing the same thing. You know, it was pancakes for breakfast. It was hot fudge cake for lunch. And it was uh, peach milkshake 
at Chick-fil-A, which I ain't got many more months, I'm many more weeks, about a month a month, you know. I mean, those are good. Those are, ooh, they're so good. Peach, milkshake, whipped cream, no cherry. That's me, okay? But they started to notice that people were looking at what they were eating. And because of what they noticed that they were eating, they started to plan their menu differently. And then you know what they started to do because of what they were eating? They started to exercise because they realized that they weren't eating well. It was just that one habit, that one habit of journaling down what they were eating, that keystone habit and food journaling started impacting all of these other habits. And you see, here's what I think was going on in the early church. When Acts, the book of Acts summarizes the church, the early church that Jesus launched, it's not coincidental that that early church was preoccupied with the spirit of generosity. See, I think Acts is really describing a keystone habit in the early church. Because I think it's describing the way that God transforms people's attitudes and behaviors in a whole bunch of other areas by this one thing, this one pattern. Being generous, generosity. It taught people how to give up self-sufficiency. Being generous with what they had, it taught people what some of us need to understand. It taught people how to depend on God. So you think you can't give because, you know, I mean, I only got this. I mean, let me tell you, that's why you start from the top. You give God right from the top. Then you don't have to worry about it. You have to depend on God. In the early church, it taught them how to overcome selfishness. It got them to notice other people, to enhance their ability to love. And it wasn't just that. John Ortberg said it this way. He said, it was the generosity of the early church that staggered people outside of the church. It's a community of unprecedented generosity. They just gave to anybody. Anybody who had a need, they would give to that need. And there had never been a community like this before. So I started to think. Look, look at the screen. How, how do we become a generous church? I mean, think about it. How, how do we become a generous church? Well, I mean, I'm not going to complicate this. Maybe we just say, what, what, what can I share? What can I share today? Maybe if we want to be a generous church that is filled with generous people, we just ask the question, look at, look at the question, what can I share today? What do I have today that I can share? Can I just say this? Maybe you have an extra car. And again, let, just hang with me on this. Maybe you have a car at home that you're not using. And you know somebody down the street who needs 
to run some errands and their husband works during the day and they're at home with the kids and, 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 and you don't use the car, you have your own car, you have an extra car and, and maybe you just share that car with them one day this week. Now, here's what I would tell you. Don't just share it with anybody without knowing that they have a driver's license and that, you know, how your insurance is going to... You have to be stewardly about this. But what do you have today that you can share? What do you, what do you have that you can share? Maybe, maybe tomorrow when you go to work and there's credit to be had for something that was done in your place of employment, why don't you just share the credit? Don't take the credit. Share the credit with other people, with other team members. Maybe today when you leave here, can I just tell you, you can't go to Chick-fil-A today. That'll have to be tomorrow. But you know, maybe what you do is you, you just share that place in line and you let somebody go in front of you. How do we become a generous church? We just share what we have. That, that's where I believe it starts. We share often. If you're at home, Maybe share the remote. No, don't share the remote control because I know that'll start a whole different day. Well, you just kind of do your own thing there. You know what I'm saying? That remote control at my house is a coveted possession. Can I get an amen? Glory to God in the highest. You want to hold on to that. When my wife doesn't put it back where it goes, she's gone. I can say this right now. There is heck to pay. You know what I'm saying? I want it to be where I can see it. Because I'm OCD like that. And control-oriented. Right, Lori Dove? Yeah, that's me. Share credit. Share what you have. You see, I think sharing is like a keystone habit that kind of brings us to the next thing. If we're going to be a generous church filled with generous people, here's the thing we have to do. Look Look at the screen. We have to give regularly. If you want to get serious about this, you need to find a systematic way to be generous. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. It says, on the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money that you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Because you know what he knew? He knew that once he got there, everybody would have already spent it, which is why we give off the top a percentage. Because if you want generosity to become a keystone habit in your life, you can't wait till you feel generous to be generous. Again, I can't tell you how many people that were severely impacted by the Great Recession. You say, the Great Recession, when was that? That was 2007, 2008. People in this church... We just started in 2006, and people were just, I mean, it happened like all of a sudden. And and can I tell you how many people told me that, Randy, I just can't afford to give right now, but if God will just get me through this, the Great Recession and those terrible times, if God will just get me through this, I'm going to give like I've never given before. the big question is, well, okay, what did they do? Can I tell you what they did? Most of the people that told me that did exactly the opposite. And do you know that's what statistics tell us? 
Again, that's why I believe the Bible, I know you don't like it, but again, that's why the Bible teaches about the importance of percentage giving. A tithe is 10%. A tithe is 10% off the top. It's not off the bottom. It's off the top. And when you think about the early church and how they gave and they didn't consider things to be their own, you start to recognize that, that it wasn't this early church that was necessarily known for the things that they believed. I mean, their beliefs were really important. But what happened is that people out in the community of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, they looked at them and they said, you know what, those people in the early church, they're, they're kind of strange. And I don't believe what they believed. But man, I'm sure glad they're here. Because they gave. And people in the community said, I'm glad there's a group of people like that in our community. Do you really understand this? Because this happened in a group of people that had way, way less than what we have. Because once there was a time when the Spirit of God moved so deeply over a community and God's grace was so powerfully at work in those people that nobody in that church regarded their stuff, regarded it as their own. And they shared it. And the Bible tells us because of what they did, there was no needy among them. Because they learned that it, whatever it might be, it's not really mine. It isn't yours. It's his. It's all a gift. All of it, you hear me? All of it is a gift. I don't care whether, care whether you're driving a Mercedes or a Mazda. I don't care whether you're driving a Denali or a Datsun. I know they don't even make those. It's a Nissan. It's his. And I realize that most of us, me included, have trouble with that because we live the American life where it's all about me. But you need to understand, my lips, it's a gift. It's a gift that he's given you. So steward it wisely. And remember, you can't wait to feel generous, to be generous. You can't wait until you feel generous, to be generous. Make generosity a keystone habit in your life today. And watch how that habit impacts all the other areas of your life. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning, please?
God, the truth is we don't realize how much we truly need you. You're the source of life, of breath, of wealth, of health. You're the giver of all of those. You're holy. And you are to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And sometimes the truth, God, is difficult for us to digest because we want things to be a little different and we want it to be a little bit more about us. But see, that's one of the reasons why every head bowed, every eye closed, that if you pay any attention to the songs that Julio selects in our worship set, they're not about us, they're about him. Because it's all about him. It's all about him and it's all his. And that's the reason why we assemble as a family to worship Him for His goodness and His grace and His mercy. It's Him. It's about Him. It's not about us. So why would we not take what God has given us? For some it's a lot, for some it's a little, but why would we not take what He's given? And why would we not be generous people? Lord, we just pray today that the the truth of your word is hard it is it, as hard as it can be to digest sometimes that it would take root deep in our heart and our soul and God that today when we leave here that some of us would be changed that all of us would be changed in Jesus name but that we would be changed and we would be the people that you want us to be generous people filled with generosity sharing the things that we have so that there are no needy among us. We've got a long way to go. COVID dealt us a blow. But Lord, we're not giving up, we're not giving out, and we're not giving in in Jesus' name. We pray this prayer. Amen.
temptation comes my 